for all that you're doing, Lord. We thank you for who you are, uh, for what you have accomplished, Lord. And, that, and so much so, Father, we are even more grateful, Lord, that you have given us your word, that we may receive revelation of who you are, to know your heart, to know your plan, to know your desire, to know your will. Lord, Father, I ask, Lord, that you would bless us, Lord, guide us, lead us as we journey in your scripture today. Speak to us, Lord, that we may know who you are, that we may know what you desire for us as your people. And we say that in your name we pray. Amen and amen. Numbers chapter 17. We've gone through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and now we're in Numbers. So let's go to Numbers chapter 17 and let's read. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and get from them a rod from each father's house, all their leaders according to their father's houses, 12 rods. Write each man's name on his rod. And you shall write Aaron's name on the rod of Levi. For there shall be one rod for the head of each father's house. Then you shall place them in the tabernacle of meeting before the testimony where I meet with you. And it shall be that the rod of the man whom I choose will blossom. Thus, I will rid myself of the complaints of the children of Israel, which they make against you. So Moses spoke to the children of Israel. Each of their fathers gave them a rod apiece, each leader according to their father's houses, 12 rods. And a rod of Aaron was among their rods. And Moses placed the rods before the Lord in the tabernacle of witness. And it came to pass. On the next day that Moses went into the tabernacle of witness and behold, the rod of Aaron of the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds, had produced blossoms and yielded ripe almonds. Then Moses brought out all the rods from before the Lord to all the children of Israel and they looked and each man took his rod. And the Lord said to Moses, bring Aaron's rod back before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels, that you may put their complaints away from me, lest they die. Thus did Moses, just as the Lord commanded him, so he did. So the children of Israel spoke to Moses, saying, Surely we die, we perish, we all perish. Whoever comes near the tabernacle of the Lord must die. Shall we all utterly die? Hmm. Numbers 18. If my Bible will go there. Then the Lord said to Aaron, you and your sons in your father's house with you shall bear the iniquity related to the sanctuary. And you and your sons with you shall bear the iniquity associated with your priesthood. Also, bring with you your brethren of the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father, that they may be joined with you and serve you while you and your sons are with you before the tabernacle of witness. They shall attend to your needs and all the needs of the tabernacle, but they shall not come near the articles of the sanctuary and the altar, lest they die. They and you also. They shall be joined with you and attend to the needs of the tabernacle of meeting for all the work of the tabernacle, but an outsider shall not come near you. And you shall attend to the duties of the sanctuary and the duties of the altar, that there may be no more wrath on the children of Israel. Behold, I myself have taken your brethren, the Levites, from among the children of Israel. They are a gift to you, given by the Lord to do the work of the tabernacle of beating. Therefore, you and your sons with you 
shall attend to your priesthood for everything at the altar and behind the veil, and you shall serve. I give you priesthood, sorry, I give your priesthood to you as a gift for service, but the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. Hmm. Verse 8, and the Lord spoke to Aaron, Here I myself have also given you charge of my heave offerings, all the holy gifts of the children of Israel. I have given them as a portion to you and your sons as an ordinance forever. This shall be yours, the most holy things reserved from the fire, every offering of theirs, every grain offering, every sin offering, every trespass offering which they rendered to me shall be most holy to you and your sons. In a most holy place, you shall eat it. Every male shall eat it. It shall be holy to you. This also is yours, a heave offering of their gift. With all the wave offerings of the children of Israel, I have given them to you and your sons and daughters with you as an ordinance forever. Everyone who is clean in your house may eat it. All the best of the oil, all the best of the new wine and the grain, their first fruit, which they offer to the Lord, I have given them to you. Whatever first ripe fruit is in their land, which they bring to the Lord, shall be yours. Everyone who is clean in your house may eat it. Every devoted thing in Israel shall be yours. Everything that first opens the womb of all flesh, which they bring to the Lord, whether man or beast, shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall surely redeem, and the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem. And those redeemed of the devoted things you shall redeem when you, when one month old, according to your valuation for five shekels of silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is 20 geras. But the firstborn of a cow, the firstborn of a sheep, or the firstborn of a goat, you shall not redeem. They are holy. You shall sprinkle their blood on the altar. You shall burn their fat as an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord. And their flesh shall be yours, just as the wave beast and the right thigh are yours. All the heave offerings of the holy things which the children of Israel offer to the Lord, I have given to you and your sons and daughters with you as an ordinance forever. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord with you and your descendants with you. Hmm. Then the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, nor shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the children of Israel. <laughs> Behold, I have given the children of Levi all the tithes in Israel as an inheritance in return for the work which they perform, the work of the tabernacle of meeting. Therefore, sorry, work of the tabernacle of meeting hereafter, the children of Israel shall not come near the tabernacle of beating lest they bear sin and die. But the Levites shall perform the work of the tabernacle of beating. They shall bear their iniquity and it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that among the children of Israel, they shall have no inheritance. So much here. For the tithes of the children of Israel, which they offer up as a heave offering to the Lord, I have given to the Levites as an inheritance. Therefore, I have said to them, among the children of Israel, they shall have no inheritance. 
Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak thus to the Levites, and say to them, When you take from the children of Israel the tithes, which I have given you from them as your inheritance, then you shall offer up a heave offering of it to the Lord, the te- a tenth of the tithe. And your heave offering shall be reckoned to you as though it were the grain of the threshing floor and as the fullness of the winepress. Thus, you shall offer a heave offering to the Lord from all your tithes, which you receive from the children of Israel. And you shall give the Lord's heave offering from it, Aaron, the priest of all your gifts. You shall offer up a heave offering due to the Lord from the best of them, the consecrated part of them. Therefore, you shall say to them, when you have lifted up the best of it, then the rest shall be accounted to the Levites as the produce of the threshing floor and the produce of the wine press. You may eat in any place, you and your households, for it is your reward for your work in the tabernacle of meeting. And you shall bear no sin because of it. When you have lifted up the best of it, but you shall not profane the holy gifts of the children of Israel, lest you die. There's so much here. Numbers 19. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, this is the ordinance of the law, which the Lord has commanded saying, speak to the children of Israel, that they bring you a red heifer without blemish in which there is no defect and on which a yoke has never come. You shall give it to Eliezer, the priest, that he may take it outside the camp and it shall be slaughtered before him. And Eliezer, the priest, shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood seven times directly in front of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the heifer shall be burned in its sight, in his sight, its hide, its flesh, its blood and its offal shall be burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet and cast them into the midst of the fire, burning the heifer. Then the priest shall wash his clothes. He shall bathe in water. And afterward, he shall come into the camp and the priest shall be unclean until evening. And one who burns it shall wash his clothes in water, bathe in water, and shall be unclean until evening. Then a man who is clean... Sorry, then a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and store them outside the camp in a clean place, and they shall be kept for the congregation of Israel for the water of purification. It is for purifying from sin. And the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. It shall be a statute forever to the children of Israel and to the stranger who dwells among them. He who touches the dead body of anyone who uh, he who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean seven days. He shall purify himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day. Then he will be clean. (laughs) Whoever touches the body of anyone who has died and does not purify himself defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. That person shall be cut off from Israel. He shall be unclean because the water of purification was not sprinkled on him. His uncleanliness is still on him. This is the law when a man dies in a tent. All who come into the tent 
and all who are in the tent shall be unclean seven days. Every open vessel which has no cover fastened on it is unclean. Whoever in the open field touches one who is slain by the sword or who has died or a bone of a man or a grave shall be unclean seven days. And for an unclean person, they shall take some of the ashes of the heifer, burnt for purification from sin. And running water shall be put on them in a vessel. A clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water, sprinkle it on the tent, on all the vessels, on all on the persons who were there, or on the one who touched a bone, the slain, the dead, or of a grave. The clean person shall sprinkle the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. And on the seventh day he shall purify himself, wash his clothes, and bathe in the water at evening. He shall be clean. But the man who is unclean and does not purify himself, that person shall be cut off from among the assembly because he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water of purification has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean. It shall be a perpetual statute for them. He who sprinkles the water of purification shall wash his clothes. And he who touches the water of purification shall be unclean until evening. Whatever the unclean person touches shall be unclean. And whatever the person touches, it shall be unclean until evening. We'll read one more chapter and then we're going to share some thoughts here. Numbers 20. Then the children of Israel, the whole congregation came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month. And the people stayed in Kadesh and Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for their congregation. So they gathered together against Moses and Aaron and the people contended with Moses and saying, if only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. (laughs) Why have you brought up the assembly of God into this wilderness that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It's not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly of the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron. Gather the congregation together. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and said to them, Hear now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod and water came out abundantly in the congregation and the animals drank. (laughs) Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which you have given them. (laughs) Sorry. I want to highlight that. There was water in Meribah 
because the children of Israel contended with the Lord and he has hallowed and he was hallowed among them. Now Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, you know all the hardship that has befallen us, how our fathers went down to Egypt and we dwelt in Egypt a long time and the Egyptians afflicted us and our fathers. When we cried out to the Lord, we heard our voice and sent the angel and brought us up out of Egypt. Now here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your border. Please let us pass through your country. We will not pass through fields or vineyards, nor will we drink from the water from the wells. We will go along the king's highway and we will, we will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we have passed through your territory. Then Edom said to him, you shall not pass through my land, lest I come out against you with the sword. So the children of Israel said to him, we will go by the highway. And if I or my livestock drink any of your water, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. Then he said, you shall not pass through. So Edom came out against them with many men and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his journey. So Israel turned away from him. Now the children of Israel, the whole congregation journeyed from Kadesh and came to Mount Hor. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron shall be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given the children of Israel, because you rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. Now, take Aaron, Eliezer, oops, sorry. Why is this doing this? There we go. Oops. Okay. Take Aaron and Eliezer, his son, bring them up to Mount Hor. And strip Aaron of his garments and put them on Eliezer, his son. So Aaron shall be gathered to his people and die there. So Moses did just as the Lord commanded. And he went up to Mount Hor in the sight of the congregation. Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eliezer, his son. And Aaron died there on top of the mountain. Then Moses and Eliezer came down from the mountain. And when all the congregation saw that Aaron died, the house of Israel mourned 30 days. Whew. mourned 30 days. There is a lot here uh, to unpack. Um, and so, um, obviously, I'm not afforded the time to really break down every nuance and dimension of the text, but that's not our purpose here. Our purpose when we come together here is the read and read. The primary purpose is for us to read the word. That's it. The primary purpose for us is to read the word because reading the word in and of itself is a powerful endeavor. It is a powerful, a profoundly powerful activity. Those of you who have been reading with us over the past few months have all attested how this time in reading the word has transformed your life has transformed, has profoundly transformed your life. And that's encouraging to me because that's the whole purpose for why we're here. We're here, and part of the reason why I'm even journeying with you guys through the scriptures is because I want to show you how just simply disciplining yourself in reading the word changes your life. Even if you, even if you don't understand every element of what you're reading, even if some of it sounds confusing, even if some of it's unclear, 
The spirit is being fed by the word. The spirit is being nourished by the word. Something transformative happens. It is a travesty family. When we do not implore believers in our churches to read their word, we think that if we simply just give them that 30 minute sermon on Sunday, that 30 minute word on Sunday, that that's going to be enough to sustain them. Right. We'll give them a little bit of candy on Sunday and a little bit of encouragement and, and make them feel good for that hour that they're there at church or that hour and a half, depending on where you are, that they that they go to church and then afterwards send them back, only fiending to come back again on Sunday to get another hit because life happens from Monday through Saturday. People believe that being fed is being given a good sermon, and yet you have the food right in front of you. Most Christians, unfortunately, are the ones who don't engage with the scripture that sits on their their nightstand or on their table or on their shelf. And so I wanted to journey with you because when people often ask, well, what do you do to grow? How do you continue to grow in the word? How do you continue to grow in your awareness? Like, like how do you continue to develop spiritually? The reality is, is that to develop is to simply discipline yourself in reading the word. All of it. So I believe every Christian should discipline themselves in a way where they're reading through almost the entire Bible every year. Because guess what? On Sunday, those 52 weeks that were that, that that you're being preached to on Sunday, you only have 52 weeks. Think about this. 52 weeks. And now the average sermon is somewhere around 30 minutes, family. The average sermon is somewhere around 30 minutes. So you got 30 minute sermon for 52 weeks. That's 26 right 52 weeks so so you've got about 26 hours of teaching in an entire year and somehow we believe that we're going to grow through just that it's not going to happen it's not going to happen um we only have 26 hours as pastors to preach to our congregations So if we as pastors don't instruct and don't implore believers to spend time in reading the word for themselves, we are doing them an incredible, an incredible disservice. And that's the unfortunate reality. The unfortunate reality is, is that um, the culture that we've created is that only the pastor can tell me what the Bible says. And so I only get in the word when I hear from my pastor because I need to know what my pastor is saying about what the Bible says. So we create a bunch of disempowered Christians. That's why there's a lot of people who are going through stuff at night and they don't feel like they're equipped enough to handle the things that they're going through. And so they feel like they have to call their pastor because somehow their pastor is the one that's closer to God. Their pastor is the one that somehow has more access to God. No, not even true, not even close. And if you heard my rant yesterday, we talked about this before, that the fact that we have created this this, this 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 distinction between the pastor and the parishioner is one of the reasons why the church is so broken today. Every member is a minister. Every member should move in the power of God. Every member should be equipped and moved and to move in the power of God within whatever sphere of influence they're in. And that's unfortunate. It's unfortunate because most believers are still in their baby phases, even 20 years into 20 years into their faith. And part of it is and and this is not to blame you. OK, I'm not blaming you. I'm actually blaming the church, the, the corporate Catholic, the body, the, the, the church. 
the capital C church, because we have created this culture. We have created this culture where we've elevated certain men and women of God and say, oh, they're the ones that we have to go to to get access to God. They're closer to God. We come against that. We all have access to God. The veil was torn. We have direct access to God through Jesus Christ. How can you not have access to God when Jesus is in you? Like, how can you not have access to God when Christ is in you? Anyway, that's just my side rant on that. And so that's why we do this. We do this read and rant because I want you to be empowered to, to, to read the word for yourself. Because when you read the word for yourself, then you're going to begin to understand and have a better perspective of the purpose for which the word cultivates your faith. For many people, the word does not cultivate their faith. And so that's why I hope that this would in some way be a, a, an encouragement to you. Um, and so let me preface all this and then we're going to get into uh, my thought because there's a lot of thoughts from this particular portion of scripture. So uh, let me uh, just stick with me for a minute. But I have to preface by saying this and I've said this to my TikTok family and I've also said this to my Facebook family who are all live with me right now. But I'm going to also say this to my um, to the Instagram family, since now we're bringing Instagram into the into the fold. I want to also say this because I got right now I got 252 of you on TikTok. I got about 23 people on IG and I have about 12 of you on the Facebook group. So and you're all equally important. And I want you all to hear this. This is incredibly this is critical. We read we're reading with a cheat code. What do I mean by that? We're reading with a cheat code because for most of us who journey with us from the beginning, we read through the New Testament. So we know how the story ends. We know how the story is fulfilled. But for those of you who are reading now, you don't have that. And so I understand that. So we're going to be reading with attention. Most people read wrong. Um, Sanders, you say that the Bible is contradictory. But the reason why you say that is because you haven't really read it for yourself and you've had someone else tell you that the Bible is contradictory. When you read it for yourself and actually read it without inserting yourself into the scripture, you'll realize that it all points to the same thing. It all points to one thing. It does not contradict. Scriptures don't contradict at all. We are the ones who are contradictory. And so it's important that we have a, 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 a the right posture when you read the scriptures. Case in point, most Christians read the Old Testament wrong. Most Christians read the Old Testament with the wrong lens, with the wrong vantage point, with the wrong perspective. Most people, when they read the Old Testament, they read the Old Testament as if it was written to them. That is error number one. And so because they read the Old Testament as if it was written to them, they read the Old Testament through their cultural lens, through their interpretation of what is going to, uh, of, of what is transpiring in this particular cultural moment. And so because they read it as if it's written to them, they misinterpret the scripture. The reason why a lot of Christians read the Old Testament and they see the Bible as a book of rules is because they read it as if it is written to them. 
But the Old Testament was not written to you. The Old Testament was written for you. The Old Testament was written directly to the children of Israel. The Old Testament was not written. And, and if, you're, if you're not reading it that way, you're going to misread, you're going to misinterpret, and you're going to get all confused. And that's what happens. When we read Exodus and we read the Ten Commandments, we read the Ten Commandments in Exodus as if it's a book of rules written to us. No. We read these laws that we see in Exodus and Leviticus and in Numbers. We read these laws and we read them as if they are written to us. You've read it wrong. Man, Fidel, I hope you journey with me through this because a lot of people have made that error and in part it's because it's been taught that way. But the scripture in the Old Testament was not written to Christians. It was written for Christians. It was actually written to the children of Israel. It is for Christians to understand the implications of why it was written in the way that it was written to the children of Israel. Is anybody hearing what I'm saying? This is really important because when you read it that way, then now you can begin to understand that the Bible is not a book of rules. But the Bible is actually a story of a people. The Bible is not a book of rules that Christians ought to follow. The Ten Commandments are not the rules for being good Christians. <laughs> okay? The Ten Commandments reveal the morality of God, but it's not the rules of going to heaven. Okay? People will tell you, well, if you break the Ten Commandments, then you're going to go to hell. That is absolutely false. Okay? That's the, the, the Ten Commandments weren't even written to Christians. Okay? They weren't written to you. They were written to a particular people at a particular time. And now when you understand why it was written the way it was written, then you'll understand the implications of how we ought to live today as believers of Jesus Christ. What is the story of the scripture so far as we've read up to this point? Sin came into the world through Adam's disobedience. Oh, let me back that up because I know I know right now I'm making some people uncomfortable. Like, what do you mean if breaking the Ten Commandments is, or breaking God's law, breaking the law? What, what do you mean if breaking the law, um, 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 that 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 the law we're not under the law? Let me help you understand this. Let me back it up for a second. If it was the law that saved you, then Abraham couldn't go to heaven. If it was the law that saved you, then Noah couldn't go to heaven. Because the law did not exist in Abraham's time. And the law did not exist in Noah's time. So if it's a law that, that, that saves people and brings people to heaven, then Abraham is screwed. Sarah is screwed. Isaac is screwed. Jacob is screwed. Even Israel himself, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel is screwed because the law did not exist in their time. There was no Ten Commandments. There was no, um, um, there was none of that. So the law didn't exist. There'd be no hope for Adam. There would be no hope for Eve. There'd be no hope for, for, for any of these people because the law did not exist until later on in the text. What happened was, is that Adam disobeyed God in not fulfilling his mandate in being the imager of God, the ambassador of God. And so 
when sin came into the world, death, evil, all these things came into the world. Okay? Satan didn't bring sin in the world. Adam did. Sin came into the world. And when sin came into the world, um, death, pestilence, disease, dissension, all these things came into the world as a result of sin. Because God isn't doing anything on earth without human participation. The moment that, that human beings break rank with God, all the pain and suffering comes as a result of that. So now God intended, because he loved his people, is he, he intended to bring the people back into relationship with him to restore all men and to restore all people, to restore human beings. So what did he do? He called Abraham. And the scripture tells that Abraham believed God and his belief in God was accounted as righteousness. And what Abraham did was, is that Abraham became now the man who would usher in a new nation, a new family, a new people. And through Abraham would come the redemption of all humanity. All people would be saved through Abraham, Abraham's seed, Abraham's posterity. Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Israel has 12 sons. Those 12 sons, um, one of them goes to Egypt. Those 12 sons, as Genesis ends, it ends with them going to Egypt because there was a famine in the land that was given to them that Abraham had gone to, to establish the people. Now, Exodus tells us they stayed there for too long. And because they stayed there for too long, they fell under captivity. But the Lord delivered them through Moses. God called Moses. And in calling Moses, Moses now drew these people out, out of Egypt. They go from Egypt now back to the promised land that was given to them. But in between the promised land and Egypt is the wilderness. So they, the children of Israel leave, right? They leave Egypt and they're heading to, to, uh, back, back, to, um, back to Canaan, the land that was given to them. Are y'all with me so far? But before they can get there, God had to make a covenant and a pact with them because he made it with Abraham, but he did not make it with them. The promise of God still continued, but now these people had to come into agreement with God. At Mount Sinai, at Mount Sinai came the covenant. God made a contract with the children of Israel and said, you will be mine and I will be yours. Meaning, and he tells them in that text, we read all this already, guys. We, we, we've read all this. If you haven't, go back and read the prior reading rants on our Facebook group. It's the font everywhere. And, and so God makes a covenant with these people that they would be a nation of priests. They would be the nation of people that would bring the presence of God to earth to show the world what God was like. That was the whole purpose, was for them to be a people that would live in such a way to show what God was like, to bring the kingdom of God to earth, because the kingdom of God is not about politics. The kingdom of God is not about finances, not about any of that. The kingdom of God is about something much greater, something more profound, and God wanted to reveal it through these people. So he made a covenant with these people, and these people made this agreement with him in Exodus. And in that came the law. The covenant was the contract and the promise the law was how they would fulfill the contract. The law was how they would be shaped out to become the nation of priests that God called them to be. So 
the law was written to them as a distinct people to show the rest of the world what God is like. Are y'all with me so far? So now that they made this promise, the scriptures tell us, this is, this is what Exodus is about. Exodus is about a covenant that the children of Israel could not obey. They failed to obey the covenant. Exodus ends with them having the presence of God imaging through the tabernacle, but not being able to enter into the presence of God because of sin. Because they could not, as an unholy, unrighteous people, enter into the presence of God. So Exodus ends with them having the presence, but not being in the presence. So what is Leviticus? Leviticus opens up with the priests who had entered and they brought profane fire. They brought their own fire into the tabernacle and they died and, and, and the fire consumed them. So what did, what did Leviticus instruct us about? Leviticus is a book, not about laws that Christians should follow. That's where, where we get this wrong. Leviticus is a book about how God put in his law amendments to how unholy and unrighteous people can enter into the presence of God. No, the law does not specifically say how you can own slaves because you don't understand slavery then and slavery today. But that's another conversation for another day. Now, I hope you guys are with me so far here. Okay. Um, the law. Okay. The law. <laughs> was used to shape them. They could not obey it. They were unholy out of their disobedience, perpetual and continual disobedience. So Leviticus was about how God brings unholy and unrighteous people back into his presence. How does he do that? He does that through a priest and through a sacrifice. He explains in meticulous detail all throughout Leviticus how priests were set aside to be representatives of God to the people and representatives to God for the people. And the priests would bring the blood sacrifice and through the blood sacrifice, they were given access back to God. So therefore, getting back into the presence of God and having access with God had nothing to do with how well you performed. It had nothing to do with how good of a person you were. It had nothing to do with how well you obeyed the law. It was actually the law itself that put in, in, in it how they, unholy people, can enter into the presence of a holy and righteous God through the blood. It was the blood that did it. It was the blood sacrifice of the animal that allowed them access back to God. That's what Leviticus is about. And anybody who makes Leviticus about anything else does not understand it. They'll tell you, well, Leviticus, um, Leviticus, um, no, Exodus 21 does not. You're inserting your own um, cultural context. You have to understand their culture at the time to understand that slavery then is not what slavery is today. It's not the same thing, but that's another conversation for another day. So, so now, um, um, these people who were unholy and unrighteous have been given a way back into the presence of God through the blood sacrifice, not by any performance, but by simply a priest representing them and the sacrifice that they bring to that priest. Are you with me so far? God has given a way for people who break the law continually to still be in his presence. 
and that's what Leviticus is all about. He would say, well, what about the, the law about, you know, um, you shouldn't put edges on your beard or how about the one about tattoos and how about the one about this? None of those were written to you. That's not what should concern you at this point. At this point in the scripture, what should concern you is what the book is really all about. The book is all about unholy, unrighteous people having access again back into the presence of God through the sacrifice, through a blood sacrifice. And so how does Leviticus end? Leviticus ends with them back in the presence of God again. <laughs> you see that? Oh, this foreshadows all over the place. This is all a setup. This is all a setup. This is all a setup. And so these people now who have been called to be this nation of priests, called to be set aside, to be holy, and another side note, and I said this in my reading rant before, but I'll say it here just to make sure you get it. Please do not confuse holiness with righteousness. Holiness is not righteousness. People think holiness is purity. Holiness is how you dress. Holiness is no holiness is an identity. The word holy in the scriptures literally means to be set apart, to be set completely apart. It means to be distinct, to be different. You can dress differently and not be distinct. Don't make it about um, distinctness or, or sorry, don't make it about how you dress or, or how you act or how you behave. That was not it because the children of God, even when they disobeyed God, were still, being, were still called holy. How were they set apart? They were set apart by the sacrifice of the blood and by the covenant that God had with them. That was what set them apart, not their performance. Not their performance. So, I hope you guys are journeying with me because now all this happens in Leviticus in a year where God is setting in order all the things that must be done in order for us to be in the presence of God. And now they are ready to leave and they're about to carry the presence of God with them. And Numbers is about now them leaving and going to the land that was promised to them. Shannon says, I had this conversation with a pastor yesterday. He told me I should be stoned. <laughs> oh, Jesus. What exactly did you have the conversation about, Shannon? That's unfortunate. That's unfortunate. And, and I hope you guys see that. I just gave you a quick uh, recap because this is what we've been reading. We've been reading this all the way up to this point. And now finally we get to numbers and numbers starts off with a census of how the of these people who are now ready to leave Mount Sinai. They have the law. They have the law of atonement that saves them. <laughs> and now they're getting ready to get up and go. Now, not only do we have the presence, we have a way back in the presence. So now we can carry the presence. And he calls the, the tribe of Levi to carry the presence of God. Is anybody with me there so far? Now, if that's the case, this law that has been written that now shapes these people. Um, hey, Fidel, I want you to hit me up afterwards. All right. Because um, I'd like to encourage you um, to understand a few things. Because um, when you say the, the Bible speaks about slavery, the Bible does not condone slavery. Um, but I can understand how you feel that way because I've felt that way before as well. I used to believe that. So I'm not here to, 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 to attack you either. Um, because, uh, again, 
I know exactly um, <laughs> where you've come from because I've been there. Okay. Okay. Now we get to numbers and the people finally get up and leave. They finally leave Mount Sinai and all of a sudden there are all these issues. The one thing that I find particularly interesting and it was something that we read just before. There was this rebellion. Remember the rebellion that we read in Numbers chapter 16? And and then there was the rebellion of Miriam. Miriam, who was Moses' sister. Y'all remember Moses' sister. Miriam has an interesting issue with Moses. The issue with Moses is that he's married um, an African woman. Uh, Moses, the Hebrew man, married an African woman. Oh, man, there's a lot that I could say here and unpack here. Um, but it speaks into Miriam's racism. It spoke into Miriam's uh, culturalism. It spoke into uh, 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 Miriam's prejudice. But for those of you who believe that Africans were Israelites and that the Bible tells us or the Bible tells us, tells us about the Africans that were Israelites, that that's not necessarily true because if Africans were Israelites then Miriam would not have a problem with Zipporah Miriam would not have a problem with Moses' wife the problem that she had with Moses' wife was that she was African <laughs> so the Hebrews were not Africans <laughs> side note because I think somebody had just asked um, just asked that question so I wanted to make sure um, there was some understanding there the Hebrews were not Africans okay uh, but there can be Hebrews in Africa, but it doesn't matter at this point. And we'll explain later on why that doesn't matter. But that doesn't, that's not neither here nor there. I don't want to lose uh, where I'm at. So Miriam, right, has an issue with Moses. Who does Moses think he is to take a, an outsider woman, this African woman, and for him to marry this woman and have children with her? This guy taking somebody out who somebody from the outside and bring them, bringing them into to this, these people, how dare he do that? And of course we know what happens to Miriam. Miriam commits her sin and, and commits the sin of, of, of racism and prejudice. And let me, let me, let me do a side note on that as well. And I know I'm ranting here for a moment, but Let's say something that might make some people uncomfortable. But often racism comes out of fear. And often racism and prejudice can come out of a good place. Sin can come out of a good place. Racism and prejudice, as evil as it is, can often come out of a good place. Let me explain to you what I mean. <laughs> Miriam's prejudice, some would argue that her racism and prejudice was for her own preservation. For the preservation of her people. For the survival of the Israelites. Right? Right? That was her prejudice. Her prejudice, some would argue, was actually rooted out of, I don't have a problem with this black woman who's here with us. I have a problem that I may lose a part of myself 
allowing her to come in to the fold. See, I'm going to mix now her lineage and now we're bringing her bloodline and and her DNA into ours and and so there's a purity quote unquote or a preser- a, a purity that's lost. Uh, there's a preservation that we want to keep. But here's the reality family. Is that sin can often come from a good place. And for many, you have to ask why do you fear those who are not like you? Why do you fear? She was an Ethiopian woman and so uh, barely North African, further south. Why do you fear those who are not like you? Why do you fear those? So there's a fear because there's a a, a loss of self. I hope I'm helping. I know it was something that was in my my heart that I wanted to share uh, before, but we just didn't have the time. So I want to share it here because I want to get to to, to close this. And oh my gosh, it's already nine o'clock. Okay, but let, let me just share these few thoughts, and then, um, and then we'll we'll continue on on Monday, okay? But but prejudice and racism comes off as evil, but never starts off as evil. That's why often when people say, "Well, this you know this person is racist," the person gets defensive because if you call me racist, you're calling me bad. It's not that simple. We have to get to the root of the sin. The root of the sin is, is we're seeking to preserve ourselves. And out of the desire for self-preservation comes all things that are evil because in Christ, we must lose ourselves. In Christ, our identity is not in our nationality. In Christ, our identity is not in our politics. In Christ, our identity is not in our philosophies. In Christ, our identities are not in these things. And the moment that you identify yourself as these things, out of it comes sin. And this is why there's this there's this movement in, in, in conservative circles that's leading to sin. It's sinful. Um, evangelicalism has become a in, in many ways, a political idea and not a gospel-centric idea because there's not a preservation of Christ. There's actually a preservation of idea. It's a preservation of an ideology. And because it becomes a preservation of ideology, it, it breeds all types of sinful thinking. On the flip, there's this movement in liberalism Liberalism is an idea. It's an ideology that is not Christocentric. It's human-centric. And because it's human-centric, man-centric, then that ideology now begins to birth out things that do not embody Christ. And so, yes, it comes off sinful. Sin is rooted out of that as well because it's not a seeking of the glory of Christ more than it is a seeking of self-preservation. This is why I have an issue with Christians who say that they align their faith to a political idea. 
or Christians who align their faith. That's why I cannot get 100% behind the Black Lives Matter movement because it's a preservation of an idea that's not rooted in Christ. That's why I cannot get behind conservative the ideology. The reason why I can't get behind conservative ideology because it's about a preservation of idea. Are you with me here, family? And this is the problem. Racism is always, it always starts off in a good place. It often starts off in a good place. It's protecting my children, protecting my family, protecting. So we want to protect things, right? We're trying to protect ideologies. We're, we're, we're trying to protect. Does anybody understand where I'm at? So we're, we're over here trying to protect things, not realizing that we're creating the division and we're creating the sin through those desires. All right, I'll go, I'll go one step deeper on this. Miriam did not have, I don't believe, an issue with Zipporah until Moses married her. Because of that, not Miriam, sorry. Yeah, Miriam did not have an issue with Zipporah until Moses. Moses, it was okay. You know, we can have them around. You know, these, these Ethiopian people, we can have them around. And they were, by the way, among the children of Israel. We can have them around. However, to get married to us, to, to be joined as one with them, uh, I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. I'm okay with tolerating their presence, but I'm not okay with declaring myself to be one with them. I find that the reason why we're having issues right now, finding reconciliation, is because neither side wants to lose themselves. And it's unfortunate. But Miriam sins. She sins because of her prejudice. Her prejudice got her kicked out. Her prejudice afflicted her with leprosy. Her prejudice sent her out. She had boils and was white and sent her out. What I love in the scripture, I'm sorry if I went back here, but I had to go back. I felt the Lord leading me that way. What I love in that scripture is that even though she had committed that sin of prejudice and of racism, she, she was afflicted by God as a result of it. She was kicked out, but the children of Israel would not leave until she was restored. Did you hear that? Even after she committed her sin, not only was there retribution for it, but there was restoration in it. And often I believe what happens is, is that we want to see justice served. But we want to see our form of justice, not God's form of justice. We want to see justice served. <laughs> I mean, you know, oh, oh, oh. Make sure I get my 40 acres in the mule and, and, and I want to be, be sure that 
that that that, that I get my money and and then they they did this to us and I want to make sure they pay. Let them pay for their sin and for what they did. But nowhere in your justice do you have, and this is the question, do you have the desire to still dine with them and to dwell with them and to be one with them? That's what's missing. We want retaliation. We want retribution, but we don't want restoration. We don't want reconciliation. We just want ours. Now realizing that we're falling into the same sin that caused this problem in the first place. Self-preservation. Did you hear me, family? And yet we see how Miriam is restored. How is she restored? She's restored. They waited until she was healed. Moses, who was the one that was the one that was affected by it, said, Lord, please do not kill her. Do not allow her to die, please. So they kick her out, but they could have moved on and left her there. But they stayed. And the scriptures tell us that they stayed and they waited until she was restored. They would not leave, nor would they move forward until they got Miriam back. So let me ask you the question. The white supremacists that caused you so much pain, do you desire upon their restoration to eat with them and dine with them and to be one with them? That 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 black Hebrew Israelite who you say, man, that person's spewing all kinds of hate. When the Lord restores that person, do you desire to actually dine with them and to eat with them and to want to have a relationship with them? Do you have the mentality that our country cannot move forward without our white brothers and sisters in covenant with our black brothers and sisters? Do you see a nation that can move forward with only black people at the top? above white people or do you see a nation that can only move forward because white people are better than black people because I came to tell you right now there's no restoration if one is above the other we ought to be one in him this is the work of Christ and we see that embodied here in the scripture One last thought. Um, In Numbers 19, I'm sorry, that was a rant. And whatever, you guys have to put up with me anyway. Um, Oh my gosh, there's so much stuff here. But there was one thing that stuck out to me. Let me see if I can find it. And then we're going to close. Um... These are things that I've talked about before, about the Levites and the role that they play. That's why I didn't really spend a lot of time there. But uh, um, hold on, where is it? There was something I wanted to share, something that really stuck out to me. 
Let me just point this out really quick. Um, the budding rod of Aaron. Aaron was set aside. Aaron was called. Aaron was the one called to lead the children of Israel, heading over the tribe of Levi. He's, his rod budded, and that's another conversation for another day. And 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 so he brings Aaron's rods back to the to the to the tabernacle of testimony to keep it as a sign. Then in the next chapter, Numbers eighteen, what do we see? We see that there's a reiteration of the duties of the priests and the Levites. I want to just say this real quick: that that the Levites were set aside from the rest of them to carry the presence of God. The Levites were set aside from the rest of them to administrate the tabernacle, to be the priests that would carry the presence of God and to give the people access to God. Their work and their service was not for themselves, but for others. He says in Numbers chapter 18, verse five, and you shall attend the duties of the sanctuary and the duties of the altar, that there may be no more wrath on the children of Israel. Watch this now. As the priests of the community, what they do is what sustains their relationship with God. The work of the priest, watch this now. The work of the priest, the duties of the priest, the work of the duty, the work that the priest does in the sanctuary and at the altar is what satiates the wrath of God on the children of Israel. Stay with me right here, family. What the priest did determined their destiny as it pertained to their relationship with God. The reason why God did not burn them, the reason why God did not destroy them was because of the service of the priest in the tabernacle. The priest was the mediator. The priest was at work continually doing things that they could not see, that they did not know in order to sustain their relationship with God. Their life was not theirs anymore. Look what it says in verse seven. It says, therefore, you and your sons with you shall attend to your priesthood for everything at the altar and behind the veil and you shall serve. I give your priesthood to you as a gift for service. But the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. The work of the priest is what administrated their relationship with God. I say this to say this, is that there's a work that's being done that you do not see, that maintains your relationship with God. There's a work that's being done that you have not seen, that sustains and maintains your relationship with God. God's wrath was held back from the children of Israel because of work that was done behind the veil by the priests. I, I, I say this because you see, they understood that. They understood that their survival was determined in their relationship with God was determined not by how well they performed, but what somebody was doing on their behalf what somebody was doing in the presence of God on their behalf. Somebody was at work for them. Did you hear me? The priest in that time worked to sustain their relationship with God. And I came to declare to you, and I'm going to say it real short because we have the cheat code. The scriptures tell us now that we do not need to go to a priest because we have a high priest 
who is now in us, who interceded for us and finished the work. The veil was torn from top to bottom. And now we have direct access to God, not by our doing, but by the work that the priest was doing on our behalf behind the veil. The, the, veil. the priest did the work that gave us access back to God. Um, we will continue this next week. I know I went a little over time, but there was so much more I wanted to share, but I, I'm not afforded that. But I definitely want you to stay with me as we continue to journey through the scripture. Um, man, I want to talk about oh, Numbers 20. You know what? I'll open Numbers 20 in our talk um, on Monday, but every weekday from 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time to around 9 Sometimes up to 9.30, depending on the day, we um, we engage in a read and rant. And I hope this was helpful to you and informative uh, to you. And I hope to see you again. Um, so let me see here. There was one thing I want to make sure I catch that before I close with prayer. So I'm going to close with prayer. I had the same conversation with the pastor. Hold on, Shannon. Hold on. Oh, you called her brother and not pastor. <laughs> They had a problem with his wife because she was free. I always thought they had a problem with his wife. Ah, yes, 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 yes. Um, there were many reasons why they had an issue with his wife. I just pointed out to one of them. Um, so, so there's a lot to unpack from that shit. And I, I, I don't think you should have been uh, stoned for it. But he is your brother in Christ. And if he serves as your pastor, he's worthy of double honor as well. Um if he's your pastor, then he's worthy of double honor. And so I don't think, I think he overreacted maybe to that, uh, Shannon. He may have overreacted, but um, he is your brother in Christ. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. Even your pastor. Your pastor is not your daddy. Okay. Your pastor is not your daddy. Um, you're fa- you have a heavenly father. Okay. Uh, you don't, you, you know, that's another. Oh, he's not your, he's not your, well, I mean, if he is, unless he's not a pastor worthy of honor, then I, I completely understand that. Uh, okay. I'll take one, one last question. Can we have tattoos? Um, okay. I'll, I'll answer that. Do you do zoom sessions too, or just IG on IG live? I'm actually on TikTok live. Uh, I've been doing this on TikTok live for months now. We got about 230 people who are on right now on TikTok and I have a few people on Facebook as well um but now i'm gonna start doing them on ig so you get to join that as well um do i do zoom sessions i don't do zoom sessions right now it's all going to be on ig so just join me every monday through friday from 8 a.m eastern standard time so we'll, we'll, we'll continue on uh with the read and rant um the question about tattoos i'm only doing this because this is this is the ig special so i don't usually answer like questions per se sometimes i do but I don't usually address or answer questions. So let me uh, let me um, let me give you the short answer to that. Uh, people ask, "What well, is, is is you know is tattoos? Are tattoos a sin? Am I allowed to have tattoos? Can I wear tattoos? What does the Bible say about tattoos?" My first question, and this is not, I'm not going to attack you, John. Okay, I don't want I don't want you to think I'm attacking you. Um, why are you so concerned? Why, why are you overly so overly concerned about tattoos? And I say that only to say that sometimes we have to first address our hearts to know why we want to have a tattoo or why we, we want to get a tattoo. Um, what does that tattoo embody? What does it represent? You know, these are all questions that you, you know, that I'm, I'm asking. I'm sorry. It's a heart question. You don't need to answer that question. Okay. Um, directly. So it's just something I want you to be reflecting about and to think about. Now, here's the problem. 
a lot of people will tell you that that getting a tattoo is a sin um, and they'll use a scripture uh, in Leviticus to tell you that getting tattoos is a sin. Here's the problem with that. First of all, it's not a tattoo. Um, the, 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 we, we translate the word again. This is the problem with translation. I know I had a brother, I think it was Fidel, I believe, who was, who's been, who's kind of struggling with the whole thing, uh, with, with uh, the whole slavery thing. And man, I'm with you on that. Uh, but the, the whole question of tattoos, let me make sure you understand this. Um, we, the English language translated the word to tattoos, but the scriptures actually say, do not mark your bodies for the dead. Okay, so it was a marking of the body for a specific person. Okay, as a matter of fact, the tattoos that we wear today, they didn't have that kind of technology or that kind of thing to do that kind of thing. The type of marking was one that was of a, uh, it, it was a pagan ceremony that they would participate in. Um, in that scripture, when he says, do not mark your body, there's actually only one verse that people use to tell you that tattoos is a sin. And in that verse, he says, do not mark your bodies for the dead. I am the Lord. Why would he say that? He's saying the purpose by which people mark their bodies for the dead. They mark the bodies for the dead for the sake of devil worship or for the sake of worshiping false idols. So what they would do is, is they would take the ashes. Um, they would take ashes and they would mark themselves and then they'd rub the ashes on their body and it would leave a, leave a permanent mark on their body. This was a symbol of worship to a God other than other than Yahweh. And God would not tolerate that. God did not tolerate themselves having markings and symbols of worship for a God other than Yahweh. It is not do not get a tattoo. That's the first problem. So the Bible doesn't speak about tattoos the way that we, we, we know tattoos. So the Bible does not say anything actually about it. <laughs> okay, that's the first thing. Second thing is, if it did say tattoos, even if it did say tattoos, okay, it's written in Leviticus and it wasn't written to you, okay? So even if it was that the Bible, that the Bible was speaking about tattoos, it wasn't even talking to you. It was talking to the children of Israel, what they ought not to do. Um, and so, no, uh, the, the, the Bible does not speak specifically about whether or not it is a sin to get tattoos. It has nothing to do with you. The law, the old covenant does not apply to you. Okay. Does not apply to you. Now you might say, great. So therefore it's not a sin to get tattoos. So I'm going to go run and get a bunch of tattoos. Act in wisdom. I say this all the time. Act in wisdom. We do not live for the righteous. Righteousness, the righteousness of God is lived through us. So the question you have to ask is, why are you getting a tattoo? If you're getting a tattoo for self-glory, self-worship, if you're getting a tattoo pointing to something else that you are idolizing and worshiping, if there are things in your life that are idolatries and you're getting tattoos, it speaks to something deeper that you have to address and you have to deal with. Um, but we don't live following rules. We live with Christ living through us. So no, it is not. Short answer is no, it is not a sin uh, to get tattoos. I caution it because, again, you know, not only that, you, you want to make sure if you if you are going to get a tattoo, have a good reason for getting it. Um, but no, it is not a sin uh, to get tattoos. I don't know if that helps, but watch what your tattoos are pointing to. What do they symbolize? Because what you're marking on your body 
maybe symbolizing something that is uh, that errs from what God represents. So yeah, do not mark your bodies for the dead is not a Bible verse on tattoos. I don't know if that was helpful. I think I ranted that answer more than I. So John, I hope that was helpful to you. I hope you're still here. Um, kids' names. Again, guys, I don't want to get into what's good and what's bad. What's a good tattoo to get? What we should get? What we shouldn't get? I think you need to pray about that. Did I know Ravi? I actually met him once. Brother Isaac, people are lost and are looking for our identities. People are lost and are looking. I'm trying to understand what you mean by that. Um, but if I were, if you were to if if I were to to respond to that, people are lost and are looking for their identities. My my short answer, because I don't want to go into another rant. But my short answer is is people shouldn't be looking for their identities. They should be looking for Christ's identity. If 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 you worship where you come from and you worship your ethnicity, then you fall into the same sin that mankind has fallen into, eating from the fruit of the tree. To be like God. To be themselves gods. Our identity is in nothing else but Christ. It comes out of that. If anyone be in Christ, he is a new creature. So people are looking for identities. I tell them, find Christ, find your identity in Christ, and you'll find who you are. And then you can move in the power of God. Okay. A lot of church folks aren't really in Christ either, but that's another sign. Uh, yeah. Oh, uh, wow. The, the tattoo thing really woke people up, uh, apparently. There's a whole conversation about tattoos. I'm sorry. Hold on a second. Uh, that's okay, Shavia. It's okay if you disagree. I, you know, I love people who agree and disagree. I'm not here to to propagate um, my way of thinking or anything of that nature. I actually simply submit to the Word of God. So, I have no problem at all. I'm not even offended, and I want you to still come through and hang with me and continue to read the word with me because I love everybody. I love all of y'all, so even those who disagree with me. Um, and some people disagree, and that's why I say, for those who say they're getting tattooed, let me say this as well. If you believe that tattoos draw you away from God, by all means, why would you do that? Why would you get a tattoo? If you believe that tattoos, it's keeping me from the presence of God. If that's where you're at, you I pray you don't get a tattoo because that's what it is going to do. That's exactly what it's going to do. And you should not get a tattoo. I understand this. Sin is not something you do. Sin is who you are. But that's another conversation for another day. Yeah. So I hope that was helpful. Can we talk about purpose? We could sometime. Maybe I could do a random read and rant and talk about purpose. God bless you, Rich, man. Really appreciate you. I appreciate all of you guys. Um, I'm going to close with prayer and then uh, we'll go on with our day. I'll see you guys on Monday. Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, thank you for being present. Father, I just pray that you would bless us, Lord, as we navigate through the weekend. Lord, teach us your ways that we may know you, Father. Lord, lead us to the 
rock that is higher than us, Father. We know your ways are above our ways. Your thoughts are above our thoughts. So, Father, we pray that, Lord, you would guide our feet and guide our mouths and our words. And, Lord, allow us, Lord, to be, Lord, your image on earth. Lord, that they would see Christ through us in all that we do. And we ask that in your name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Love y'all.